Hi, I'm going to read the male perspective of psychology from the Rainbow Nation for the benefit of the couch potatoes who don't want to sit and read a very long um, paper. So to get started, there is a conflict of visions playing out in politics, society and education marked by the Brexit and election of Donald Trump currently being exacerbated by COVID-19. Many are left questioning what is going on in our developed communities. This question has led to an abundance of theory and literature on the topic, offering us an array of explanations, excuses, and dire warnings. Many liberation movements have splintered into subgroups of grievances using hybrids of moral philosophy from feminism, race, equality, and human rights ideals. As a male adult with my own business and no prior formal education, concerned about the future, the question question gripped me in my early 40s. I veered into the world of social media to find answers. I quickly realized that in 2016, social media provided weak, polarizing answers to the big questions. I delved into sociology, hoping for the study of human behavior to provide solutions. Here again, I would be disappointed. I found progressive ideology and technocratic elitism that left me feeling manipulated. It was after reading Steven Pinker's book, The Blank Slate, that I finally sensed an intuitive truth behind the human group behavior. I finished the book in January 2019, put it down and picked up my phone to find a way to study psychology further. I was 46 years old, owned my restaurant and married with no children. I wanted to help others who face what I have overcome. But I also wanted to delve deeper into human behavior to enrich the second half of my life. I registered with a private college for a full-time undergraduate psychology degree. The program aims to qualify us as honors graduates in counseling with practical counseling experience in a condensed course of four years. This program is a result of the Human Professions, uh, sorry, the Health Professions Council of South Africa, the HPC, HPCSA, realizing we urgently need more psychologists, especially counselors in a nation ravaged by chronic generational trauma. I aim to highlight the discrepancy between the lack of male student psychologists and the apparent need for more males in counseling psychology. For more details, see, you'll see articles by Betty Westwood and Blackwood. This deficiency aims to be gaining attention lately as male psychology modules are now being proposed in universities. Male mental health groups are popular and we finally have a formidable resource in the Palgrave Handbook of Male Psychology. These developments come as I began questioning my decision to study psychology after encountering some of the political ideology while being a male student at the age of 46 in a young, multicultural, sensitive atmosphere. It may not surprise the reader that integrating into first year higher education as a business owner, capitalist, cisgender, heterosexual male was not easy. My cohort was mostly female between 19 and 23 years old who eyed me suspiciously for the first few weeks. There is a ratio of one male to three females in the students and educators, not unlike most aspects of psychology today. I'm old enough to be the classmates, most classmates father and the educator's sibling. However, I proceed with enthusiasm because I'm aware of the privilege of having access to higher education. I respect them for choosing psychology when other less personally challenging options exist. When I was my classmate's age, I had already been thrown out of school at 15, left alone to fend for myself after my abusive, emotionally detached father moved out. 
I had to grow up overnight and get a job or face humiliation by going for help to the misandrist female matriarchs in my Italian family. development on being South African. After decades of race-based oppression under apartheid, we emerged as a free democracy in 1994. However, not all whites benefited from apartheid to the degree that Dutch or British immigrants did. Many immigrants to South Africa after World War II barely spoke English or the Dutch derivative language Afrikaans. Italians and other post-war Immigrants were enemies of, the South of South Africa during World War II, seen as ignorant, although skilled, cheap labor by the ruling Afrikaners, and upon arriving in South Africa faced the hostility of former settlers who came before the wars. Consequently, many second-generation Italian immigrants of post-World War II Europe grew up ostracized by most white Afrikaners. The apartheid system stoked classism within the white community, albeit far less aggressively than it did between the blacks and whites. A careful reading of our records reveals many European immigrants escaped the tyranny and race-based politics rising in Europe, culminating in the spectre of Hitler. I believe this would later contribute to the liberal wave of white resistance to apartheid I witnessed that would challenge the apartheid from within the borders. For a detailed history, you can read the respected writer Marianne Tam article, The Conscience of White South Africa, where she summarizes the contribution of white activists, many of them children of those post-World War II immigrants in the anti-apartheid movement during apartheid. Due to mental health problems running through my family and an abusive dysfunctional father, I grew up in various degrees of relative poverty, at times even starvation. My parents divorced when I was eight years old. My mother had been coping with my father's beatings for 13 years by then. Ultimately, she would have, complete, she would have a complete schizophrenic break and leave us for good when I was 13 years old. She had spent her whole life trying to find a safe space for us, but could not continue, as even her own family blamed and ostracized divorced women with no education skills. She would spend the next 34 years in poorly managed mental institutions and later old age care homes. Medication only stabilized her behavior. She was never socially functional again. At eight years old, I had to be rescued from absolute poverty. We were living in a tin shack looting shooting pigeon for food. I attempted suicide at 13 because I had no support. I was abandoned to a boarding school and usually left there over weekends. Even on holidays, a teacher had to find someone in the family to come and get me. At that boarding school, I later realized I was being groomed for sexual abuse by a male teacher. Luckily, I avoided the abuse by being removed from the school only to be put into a worse school. At 15, I was brutally attacked by my father in front of my matriarchal detached grandmother. After escaping across town covered in blood, I was attacked again by my older, remorseless brother in front of my then girlfriend. In this incident, I believe I narrowly escaped fratricide because he only stopped when my girlfriend intervened. He had no empathy for me. I, be I became an adolescent alcoholic at 15 and was dismissed from high school before I could finish the final year, even though I was a higher grade student. I would later discover I endured attention deficit disorder exacerbated by poor diet, 
my whole life. Nevertheless, I survived adolescence. I welcomed the end of apartheid after decades of horrific violence, which threatened me personally. I was near an explosion in Johannesburg, which devastated a five-block radius when I was 14 years old. After Mandela's election in 1994, I felt that the nation and I were being reborn into an era of hope and peace. I persisted with the only talent I had, creating fantasy art paintings, which got me accepted into a prestigious advertising agency at, at, at age 19. This would take me away from the crime and drugs in my environment. Later, I would leave advertising on moral grounds. The illegal drugs and immorality and deceptive marketing were eating away at my soul. At 29 years old, utilizing a private loan from a wealthy client, I purchased the restaurant bus business I managed at the time. I had owned it. I have owned it for 20 years now and have been happily married for nine years. To clarify why I'm telling you this unfortunate story, I'm painfully aware of the harsh realities of poverty, gender, and class injustice. I'm supported, I, I, I fully supported the transition to constitutional democracy in 1994. I would have called myself a feminist metrosexual when I was younger. However, circumstances for, forced me to change. Owning a business made me deal with people on two levels. As the service provider host and as the employer, somehow during my 20 years of owning a restaurant, I became confident to confidant to every, everyone from the CEO client to the newly arrived undocumented migrant from other African states who face xenophobia in South Africa. My transition to middle adulthood in this environment took place as I was developing the stages mentioned in psychology, post-formal thought that life is ambiguous and contradictions are common and reflective judgment, reasoning through the dilemmas of current affairs, religion and relationships. I read Finding Meaning in the Second Half of Life and began to embrace the potential in later life stages. Finally, reading The Blank Slate by Steven Pinker pushed me to grasp psychology with both hands and make the midlife correction, changing my goals after reviewing my values to find meaning later in life. Discovering Psychology. After overcoming some awkwardness as a middle adulthood student, I bonded with my adolescent cohort and embraced the curriculum material. Discovering my life stage traits within the developmental models defined in psychology is empowering, while also helping me relate to the adolescent students with patience and empathy, skills I had neglected. Learning the successful approaches and theories in counseling is exciting and deeply rewarding. We really can help people. The requirement to read academic literature forces me to engage with material to which I would not typically expose myself. As a result, I modified some ideas I had before I began this process. However, I noticed the themes in the progressive ideology embedded in various theories presented as empirical fact. Specific material had stood out for me. Feminism, masculinities, individual identity, community development. Gender diversity. I find the curriculum to be mostly psychology with a dash of sociology, a feeling shared by a few of my classmates. South Africa is a nation birthed by colonialism, brutal wars and group identities struggling to survive against the challenges of a developing country. I accept the curriculum in psychology is established by a national body which has broader social justice concerns, optimistically in line with the Department of Basic Education and the Progressive Constitution of South Africa. The debate around psychology in South Africa is mired in its history as the enabler of racist policies through IQ testing and race theory, as detailed in Decolonizing Psychology in South Africa. 
a textbook. It is an unfortunate legacy of psychology in South Africa that a psychologist, Hendrik Frewitt, was the chief architect of apartheid. In contrast, Jan Christian Smuts was Prime Minister of South Africa on two separate occasions and was a, was a contributor to the League of Nations, which later became the United Nations. Smuts coined the term holism and collaborated with Alfred Adler, who ironically is the founder of individual psychology, which aims to address feelings of inferiority. I highlight these contrasting figures as it seems to be what is happening in psychology today. The focus has moved away from positive themes, shifting from do no harm to psychology's potential as the activist role in social justice. The activists aim to is to translate useful theoretical resources into meaningful psychopolitical practices. I'm quoting PLA 2016. Let me repeat that. The activists aim is to translate useful theoretical resources into meaningful psychopolitical practices. Psychopolitical. Nowhere in my admission forms did I say I was registering for psychopolitical training. Pile goes on to lay claim to the humanist ideal while turning psychology into a political force to end capitalism and the perceived exclusion in, in academia. In post-apartheid South Africa, with sincere respect for other people's moral beliefs, I counter this perspective on our society's ills in the age of rising inequality with economist Thomas Sowell, who eloquently analyzes these issues in his book, Wealth, Poverty and Politics. Quote, People who have acquired academic degrees without acquiring any economically meaningful skills not only face personal disappointment and disaffection with society, but also have often become negative factors in the economy and even sources of danger, especially when they lash out at economically successful minorities and ethnically polarize the whole society they live in. How ironic that this person, Pile, was speaking and writing from South Africa. People who have acquired academic degrees without acquiring many economical meaningful skills not only face personal disappointments and disaffection with society, but they also have often become negative factors in the economy and even sources of danger, especially when they lash out at economically successful minorities and ethnically polarize the whole society they live in. That's what Thomas Sowell said. With this quote, I hope to bring us back to the realm of positive political, politically neutral psychology. I want to reset the activist direction taken by Pile and papers I've encountered. The agenda of activist academics directing adolescent studies into political activism is unethical. Adolescent students enter the system naive and malleable, trusting the adults in the room. In the, room. the activist is fueled by notions of creating a utopia of equality by discarding decades of intellectual capital and experience which are embedded in most areas of modern psychology. I do not deny that older forms of psychology had a role in oppression and injustice, but a review of the literature, let me attempt to justify perspective of topics which concern me in the context of South Africa today. For example, feminism. Steven Pinker wrote an assessment of feminism today in the blank slate. He paraphrased Christina Hoff Summers Equity feminism is the classical liberal idea rooted in individual human agency and humanism, which calls for gender role equality. I support this position and I live it daily in my marriage and my business. I believe men need to be educated in this idea and its potential for equality, which empowers men and women. 
gender feminism is a position to classical is in opposition to classical liberalism, choosing a social constructionist postmodern radical view instead, declaring that infants are socially conditioned to gender roles of power, dominance and submission. It rejects the individual and pro proposes we can only act as groups. Pinker goes into detail about the bi biological realities of gender development, which I will come back to later. However, in my readings and lectures, the critical differences are not clarified. They are obscured by the opaque language, not so much in textbooks, but in journal articles. We are presented with general feminism, the liberation of women, and some suggestion is made that it allows for progressive changes in gender roles. The gender feminists would have us reject the science of biology and assume the patriarchy is a vast underground network of male sociopaths hell-bent on raping and enslaving women. We are simultaneously told to manage catastrophizing and counseling, yet we allow it in the education material. The distinction between these two opposing feminist movements is not made clear on or even mentioned. Neglecting an opportunity for moral psychology education, the student is left with current hashtags like men are trash and readings bemoaning oppressive patriarchy used to prop up capitalism. I have seen their reactions. They are mostly confused, defensive, and filled with fear. This is what we offer young students, especially young females, learn this upon entering the real world, at least as it exists in higher education. This victimology is presented as an empirical factor in the fragile identity versus identity confusion stage proposed by Ericsson. Are we not duty-bound as the adults in the room to equip children and adolescents with the tools to navigate an already torrid world of social media and pornography, which depicts them as objects subject to abuse and violation? Could we not educate them on the humanist ideals in equity feminism, thereby providing them with the resource of pride and individual power to face the world as adult psychologists? Meanwhile, the young boys are left feeling guilt like unwitting members of, of an oppressive male cult. Masculinities. The modern boy has a morass to navigate before he achieves adulthood. He is a pariah in the contemporary world of feminine ideals and gender role confusion. Boys are flooded with testosterone in utero. As they mature, they are more likely than girls to be hobbled by ADHD and dyslexia. Less well known, they are also more like that girls to endure colorblindness, which distorts their academic progress, anorexia nervosa from identity conflict, autism and high energy levels with no outlet. To be clear, they are less likely to endure colorblindness. The anorexia and autism uh, is spread spread between the genders, and I know females have um, high incidence of anorexia nervosa. Boys must choose an, ex an expression of masculinity once they reach puberty, best suited to their environment. The discussion of masculinities is limited at college. As a representative example, the writings of sociologist Raywin Connell are often cited in our curriculum. Connell is a sociologist specializing in large-scale large class dynamics. She transitioned from a man to a woman late in life and as a teacher, emphasized student control of learning processes. 
She is cited up to 98,000 times regarding her work on gender and was the author of Masculinities 1995. By all accounts, a detailed dive into the topic, albeit from someone with her gender identity conflict and a declared political agenda. I have struggled to understand the rationale used by Connell and other gender theorists, not for lack of trying. As described by Ridge 2019, some avenues of theory eventually collapse for want of evidence. I defer to social and cognitive scientist Dan Sperber. Sperber proposes the guru effect, which states, by using deliberately opaque language and broad terms, authors come to be overestimated, often ridiculously so, not in spite, but because of their obscurity in their language. As an expert on cognitive anthropology and linguistic pragmatics, Sperber, 2010, explains that many intellectuals benefit from an epidemiological mechanism which leads them to levels of authority unsupported by rational arguments. I suggest that this obscurity is particularly dangerous if taught to a cohort of adolescents counseling psychology students. However, I must concede to the hegemonic, hegemonic production of knowledge, as, as uh, stated by Connell in 1985. Using her previous gender neutral name, Connell is a pivotal piece on gender roles for the time. The idea that men, like women, can choose new roles in a society free from predetermined gender-based categories is the best thing to happen to men since the cessation of global wars which cost so many disposable men's lives, as Warren Farrell has said. Without, however, Connell's paper also affirms the Marxist ideology of class and power relations in gender identity and descends into denial of biological roots of gender behavior. The use of this type of material in psychology in a psychology degree should be presented as sociology theory and balanced by readings on the scientific evolutionary basis of gender expression. For example, statements like gender are the socially constructed role, quote, Graf and Heineke 2017, are used as a lot in South African papers aiming to explain the epidemic rates of gender-based violence. To be fair, in one South African study, they found violence was present in 50 to 60% of marital relationships. However, in an education setting, we must evaluate a theory because it asks us to filter our answers through a structural theory. That's Ridge 2019. We must ask, what is the goal of the theory? I believe this distraction to progressive theory devalues the tangible issues involved and implies a level of power, control, and choice by the male perpetrators, which they lack in South Africa. Otherwise, we would not have, ha have the highest suicide rate. In his introduction to Gamma Bias in the Palgrave Handbook of Male Psychology, John Barry recounts how, during a seminar on clinical psychology in the 1990s, the topic of high male suicide rates was glossed over. I'm sorry to report that this scenario repeats itself in 2020. Gamma bias represents the gender, gendered cognitive distortion matrix, which minimizes the suffering of males in society. I stress the injustice of male suicide being glossed over, while all four of the males in my class have attempted or seriously considered suicide already, all of us before our 21st birthdays. We already know South Africa's men face a complex interaction of social, cultural, and family dynamics. Rampele, 1990, long before she attempted national politics, presciently wrote about 
how men in South Africa are already dehumanized and feel threatened by loss of control over the only people, she meant women, who cushion them against their perception of total powerlessness. Perhaps men's presentation of masculinity is related to their survival strategy. Graf and Heineken, 2017, provide other possible causes of gender-based violence in South Africa that are worth mentioning in this discussion. The legacy of apartheid, income inequality, militarized hyper-masculinities, and gender inequality. Nevertheless, nevertheless, they too ignore the biological factors. Crucial to this discussion, Pinker 2016 notes, the usual sus suspects for understanding violence are completely unproven and sometimes patently false. To be clear, research is abundant in proven, measurable, biological and neurological differences between male and female, which are glossed over in discussions around gender expression. I suggest we connect GBV and other antisocial behavior by men with the suicide rate by men if we are to address many of our chronic social ills permanently. Currently in South Africa, rape, GBV, suicide, gangs, murder, joblessness and human trafficking of men are entirely out of control. Simultaneously, women and children are at the mercy of men with nothing to lose, creating a crippling environment of traditional patriarchy where any male, where any well-meaning development programs fail, leading to children being stunted in their development and sustaining the dep deprivation trap.